Hello, and welcome to the NPRD Podcast with nurse practitioner and registered dietitian Robin Kivit. Eating disorders, body image, medicine, they are all interconnected. But with so many programs, techniques, and advice to choose from, it's easy to be overwhelmed. Robin, with more than 25 years of experience as a nurse practitioner and registered dietitian, offers help and hope for everyone, families, children, and adults. Along with veteran talk show host and good friend, Jordan Rich, Robin invites you to learn much more right here on the NPRD Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the NPRD. Today we have Matt Strandberg, who is a board-certified specialist in sports dietetics and and also a strength and conditioning specialist. He has his master's in applied exercise physiology and nutrition from Columbia, and he's right in the Boston area, and we're really lucky to have him. How are you, Matt? I'm doing great. Thank you for so much for having me, Robin. Definitely. So I know we've crossed paths in the field for a while. For quite some time, I had the credential like you do, the um, CSSD. And so eager to hear today from you, I think what we had talked about, intuitive eating and healthy eating more for athletes and how some of these well-intentioned athletic strategies for success can ultimately end in disaster. Totally. So eager to hear where to go from here, and thank you again for being being with us today. Yeah, well, I appreciate you inviting me on your show to talk about these uh, issues because, as you mentioned, there are lots of good intentions uh, with a lot of different recommendations or paradigms, and something that a lot of people are not aware of are the various pitfalls that one can encounter when just accepting these guidelines or paradigms without the appropriate nuance. So for instance, what you had mentioned with intuitive eating, you know, when you look over the principles, there's a lot of good stuff that might be helpful for athletes, such as rejecting a diet culture mentality, attuning oneself to hunger and fullness cues, making peace with food, challenging the food police, reconnecting with satisfaction as well as emotions. All of these are really great principles that I think actually uh, a lot of athletes and non-athletes alike can really benefit from. That being said, these principles alone, without appropriate guidance, uh, often, from my experience, do not help athletes improve their performance or can, in many cases, actually um, increase the possibility of encountering challenges such as underfueling, decreased performance, or increased risk of injury. So to elaborate on this, when we think about athletes, they're actually very different from the non-athletic population in terms of their needs. And a large body of empirical analysis, including my own experience, as well as research, consistently demonstrate that athletes, even when listening to hunger and fullness cues and abiding to lots of the aforementioned tenets that I had mentioned, uh, even when they're attempting to meet their needs, still consistently struggle to fuel appropriately. What I'm hearing you say from experience, and I can reiterate that a lot of folks who are training are underfueling. This is definitely the case. And in some cases, you know, we can easily see why dieting or disorder eating or eating disorders might be a culprit. That being said, when we look at the overall research and also experience, most cases of underfueling 
and deficiencies are not related to dieting or disordered eating or eating disorders. And we, we can actually see why this is the case, uh, you know, just from a biological plausibility as well as just observations in the field. So, for instance, in high school and college, this is a, a key developmental period. And people are experiencing changes in terms of their overall body's needs, but also in relation to sport, there's often a significant increase in overall training frequency, volume, and intensity without a concurrent increase in hunger or intuitive drive to meet a wide variety of needs. So, for instance, a primary example of this is that athletes often require additional nutrients such as like iron or calcium, or they might be losing electrolytes or like zinc, you know, all these various micronutrients during training or just because of increased overall expenditures, they might be trying to listen to their hunger and fullness cues and trying to eat, quote unquote, the right foods. But if they're not aware and their body's not necessarily sending their this internal communication uh, for these drives, eventually a lot of athletes, especially a lot of female athletes that I work with, often enter my office with relative energy deficiency or micronutrient deficiencies with no intention of, of dieting whatsoever. They're just, you know, they're not yeah. matching uh, the communication with the, the needs of the environment. What do you think, just going back for a sec, what do you think causes the lack of hunger cues? Well, a lot of these various systems are complex. And when we look at, I mean, to I'll, I'll throw in a little science right here. I don't want to get too... It's okay. <laughs> too Jordan and I like science. Love science. We like science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so when we look at, you know, the overall system in general, uh, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, all of the various systems in our body, you know, if we imagine the individual as an organism, it's a collection of lots of different systems. Some systems are incredibly tightly regulated, some systems not so regulated. So, for instance, if you, you know, <laughs> hold your breath, uh, your body will quickly recognize that there's an starting to be an imbalance between oxygen and CO2, and this is an incredibly tightly regulated system, and you can understand why. If, if your brain doesn't have oxygen, even for short periods of time, uh, it could be lethal. So, you know, there's other systems like this um, in terms of like heat or, you know, glucose, et cetera, that exist across the board, but some are more tightly regulated, some less tightly regulated. And when we throw in the complexities of interactions with the sport, um, it can really vary in terms of how the individual responds. And when we think about, um, you know, sport in relation to how we evolved, we can adapt to a wide variety of different situations, but there weren't a lot of cavemen and cave women trying to break a four-minute mile <laughs> or deadlift yeah. 900 pounds. You know, these are things that take a consistent, concentrated effort over many, many years in a very thoughtful manner in order for the individual to adapt. And so when we go back to these systems, they're reflective of an organism that, from an evolutionary standpoint, just needed to mature enough to mate, pass on the genes, raise their offspring, and then hopefully have the offspring do the same before they got eliminated. Uh, this doesn't really account for long-term consequences or these extreme or you know varying athletic endeavors. So there really is a mismatch between kind of the demands that selective pressures in evolution really cultivated over time versus the needs um, and demands and challenges that we're facing 
with respect to sport or, you know, your typical modern environment, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I And I hear what you're saying. I'm just wondering, like, what would be when you go into a couple of meetings with a patient or client, you know, you've heard oh, from them. Oh, how do I address that, that, Yeah, like, well, if they're devoid of hunger cues, what do you get to as, like, the the reasoning for that? Well, it can really vary from person to person. You know, that it's probably beyond the scope of this conversation, but lots of different factors can influence hunger and fullness cues. And hunger and fullness cues don't necessarily reflect the overall energy balance of the organism. So a lot of people right. think the reason why we get hungry is because we need energy. That's not this not necessarily the case. Um, and you know, when we add in lots of other factors, uh, you know, genetic variability, environmental variability, um, people respond differently to physical activity, uh, different levels of physical activity, medication, stress, etc. It can get complicated. So the, a good question that you asked is, well, how do we talk about this with an athlete? Well, first and foremost, when I meet with an athlete, I sit down with them and we explore what's called the biopsychosocial. So we go over the biological components, the psychological components, and the sociological environmental components. And what we're doing is we're working together as detectives to try to understand what's going on in relation to their goals, as well as challenges that they might be experiencing. Now, to help people address this, because it can be really challenging to eat even when you're not hungry or understand, is it appropriate to eat if I'm not hungry? The work that we do is essentially working together to develop a framework with principles and an understanding of relationships and how this relates to the activities that they're trying to do as well as their overall goals. And then also, and this is where you know some of the beneficial aspects of the intuitive eating paradigm come in, there's also an encouragement of getting in touch with one's subjective experiences in relation to attuning with the various communication signals that the body may or may not be sending and taking this experience and education. And over time, what we're able to do is cultivate a framework that I call, you know, from my experience, informed intuitive eating where they're able to see how things relate over time, take that data, take the principles, the data, and the relationships, and they're able to aggregate that and scaffold this to ultimately form a greater understanding of what to do in a wide variety of situations. And this so, very much mirrors sport. Oh, yeah, sorry. So, no, I was just going to say, so you're getting to the root, you essentially get to the root of their lack of hunger cues, pointing them in the directions yeah, and, for the why, and then sort of crafting a way. Kind of similar in sport, where essentially, you know, a big part of sport is learning when to push through something, when to pull back, when to maintain so an example that we often run into like in personal training or coaching might be like pain and discomfort. So if you want to get faster or build your endurance, you have to apply what's called progressive overload to the system. You have to challenge it beyond what it's usually used to. And this disrupts homeostasis, the balance that which the system usually kind of oscillates around. Well, I could see an athlete being able to use that as an example yeah. Going to recognize more of their hungerfulness and hunger. Yeah, and so then they take that information from their training yeah. and, and they're able to say, oh, through these various drills or through these various experiences, I understand when I do this, this particular, you know, response might happen. 
you an athlete essentially when they're learning through motor learning you know they're learning movement patterns and sports patterns that then result in various patterns or outcomes and they're able to start to develop an understanding of all these various patterns and then they can make an educated guess intuitively which is essentially the summation of all these various patterns that are expressed through like an educated guess you know it's commonly known as a heuristic and the more experience you have and more information you have and more intentional practice you can start to make those decisions a lot quicker because you're consulting that that database unconsciously and able to produce you know an answer to that situation and food is no different in the sense that they're facing patterns and challenges over time and then with appropriate coaching and experience and intentional practice and learning they're able to develop those heuristics which make them more able to make an educated guess very quickly that's more often you know going to be in line with the outcome that they're hoping to elicit so thus your i like how you phrased it informed intuitive eating that makes a lot of sense i want to go to what we formerly called the female athlete triad and is now reds. <laughs> reds and i appreciate it being called reds because it certainly is more encompassing of not just women or am i incorrect yeah so so you're you're 100% on the mark that reds relative energy deficiency in sport um this syndrome is you know an evolution beyond you know what the what was formerly called the female athlete triad and there's a variety of different benefits to this so one which you named is that it encompasses all genders right so it's not just you know female only right and then secondly and this is actually one of the most important parts of it it expanded the understanding of how underfueling affects all the various systems and subsystems. So before, they're primarily talking about menstrual health and you know bone, bone disorders health, and, right, and how right. this relates to psychological, you know, effects and physiological effects. But now we can see this affects the cardiovascular system, right. the cardio, you know, the gastrointestinal system, and affects one psychology, etc. So those two main points right there were really needed because a lot of people were not being captured because they weren't female or, you know, secondly, a lot of effects were flying under the radar because it wasn't falling within the criteria of the female athlete triad. So I know the, the pieces, some of the pieces we just talked about, but tell me a little bit about how they bring the GI system into this then more as a diagnosis. I mean, you and I know when we treat eating disorder patients and have eating disorder patients who are athletes that, there are often a myriad of GI pieces to yep. to also look at and handle and, and are necessary for someone to eventually be in recovery and feel better. But how does that come into this actual diagnosis then very specifically? Yeah, so what they're trying to demonstrate with respect to, you know, the REDS paradigm is essentially they were showing a wide body of research that indicates a strong relationship between underfueling and GI dysfunction. And we often see that in disordered eating and eating disorders, but also just in underfueling. And so, you know, really the take home point is that a lot of people were missing the connection between underfueling and GI dysfunction. And I see this all the time in my practice where 
a lot of times people will go to the doctor and they'll say, I have gas, I have bloating, I have you know, right. diarrhea or dysfunction or you know, yeah. pain and all these different things. And the doctor is sending out all these consults for upper endoscopies and all these medical procedures when without, in actuality... Without addressing the problem. Yeah, with, yeah. in actuality, this person's just been under eating mm. and or right. has been underweight for prolonged periods yeah. of time. And their peristalsis has slowed down. And yeah, all these different yeah. factors that you know, commonly flew under the radar, but hopefully with reds are now being yeah. you know, brought back into the conversation. So it's interesting because the, the actual definition has been out for a while, but even in a lot of the medical things that I read and utilize for reference, there's still the specificity toward the female um, athlete triad. So I do hope that eventually... We'll, we'll move along um, in some right I, I just have one quick question, and this is fascinating, Robin and Matt. And Matt, you mentioned very early on the challenges from the food police. Can you uh, illustrate what we're talking about here? I, I think something that's worth noting is this, this is one conception of a, you know, an occurrence within our society or like a cultural manifestation. And in general... Um, you know, why it's useful to talk about this is because in the past, a lot of people would eat based off of tradition. And so, you know, there was, everyone was together. It was very much like a a family event and everyone's connected and, you know, really eating in a very similar way. But since traditions have broken down over time and since people, you know, more and more so are, are eating on their own, there's been a significant increase in terms of anxiety and stress about, am I doing it right or am I doing it wrong? And when we couple this with a lot of unfortunate, in many respects, public health initiatives over time, the way that the public health sphere, as well as society and the marketing and all these, you know, the confluence of all these various factors have really responded is with all this different messaging about how people, quote-unquote, should eat and how people, quote-unquote, shouldn't eat. So in the past, it was very simple. This is our tradition. This is how we eat. And if you don't eat this way, you know, then it's not Italian or whatever, you know, whatever culture it might be. But nowadays, there's just so many different competing interests, and they're all trying to vie for authority with regards to saying this is the truth, this is how people should eat, and this is how people shouldn't eat. And when we combine this with, you know, neurotic tendencies or paranoia and fear around obesity or health conditions or all these various medical, um, you know, uh, notions and medical frames that have been kind of unloaded onto the public, the government as well as, you know, corporations and all these various influences have really um, set, you know, set forth a strong message. And the message is, you need to be aware of what you're eating and you, there's a responsible way to eat and there's a good way to eat and there's a wrong way to eat and an irresponsible way to eat. And if, if you fall into the camp of quote unquote, making bad choices, eating junk food, eating processed food, eating fill in the blank, whatever is being demonized by that particular group, then you're falling into the, the other category. And so other people then from there, you know, whether it's a reflection of their own internal struggles or, you know, a reflection of, you know, the, the cultural, societal kind of messaging, um, which encourages other people to, to talk about other people's choices. 
it, it very much mirrors from my experience the the financial or the the narratives around wealth in the United States, such as like the myth of the deserving rich and the undeserving poor, it, it, it very much is in line with that. It's very puritanical. So a lot of people with money, why don't they just get a job? They should just do that. They should save money by uh, stop buying so many Starbucks. And, and like if they did that, they'd be much better off. Well, you can just take out that content and fill it in with food judgments where people are like, oh, well, that person obviously wouldn't have that health problem if they ate this way, or you shouldn't be eating that because you look like right. this, or et cetera, et cetera. So, so there's the, lots of moralizing and kind of um, lashing out and othering that is just so commonplace with respect to so many different aspects of our society, including food and body shape and size and exercise. It's kind it's of very puritanical in nature. Yeah. We have to close, Matt. I'm sorry, because we're running out of time. But I will just bring in, you know, when Jordan and I, we've been talking on the radio. Well, we used to talk on the radio. We did for many, many years. But (laughs) the words that he knows that we've talked about, and I'll, I'll leave it here and then thank you for being here, is similar to some of the things you brought up. So the words I ask folks not to use around food or body image, whether they're a patient, client, a parent, a loved one, a guardian, clinician, another clinician, are good, bad, sorry, should, can't, healthy, clean, and any kind of buzzword. So I'm right there with you. Thank you, Matt, so much for being with us today. And just want to put out there, mattstrandbergconsulting.com is Matt's website. And we'll look forward to having you back. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. And I Thank you for having me on. I hope everyone has a great day. You too, Matt. Take care. Thank you for joining us for the NPRD podcast with Robin Kivit. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate and review us and share this valuable podcast with friends and family. Help and hope is found here. For more, just go to robinkivit.com. That's R-O-B-Y-N-K-I-E-V-I-T.com. Or check out the NPRD.com.